So we've got an interesting message today on uh, the life of Elijah. And I was putting this series together last year, and um, I wanted to skip this part of the story because it's like this is nothing applicable from this part of the story. Um, but I realized that you can't get to the, the, the story everybody knows about Elijah. You can't get to it unless you cover this. And the story that everyone knows about Elijah, if, if you know anything about Elijah, if not, that's fine. I'd encourage you to learn about him. It is this showdown that Elijah has with the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel. That's kind of the story that people know about Elijah, you know, fire and battle and all of this drama that takes place. But there's a story that actually leads to that story that we need to look at. And actually, it's, it's a perfect, um, what I would call a perfect graduation uh, message today, because uh, it's just some really practical life steps. A lot of times when we preach through the Bible, it's not just simple. We don't gather to teach practical life steps. Those do exist in the Bible. We, we gather to declare the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But there's some great lessons we can learn from Scripture that don't seem super spiritual, um, but in reality, everything we do is, is spiritual. And so I, I want to cover this today, and I'll give you a quick recap. Um, Elijah and Elisha, they're prophets uh, called by God. They live around seven to 800 B.C. Uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel, and they are called by God uh, to impact the world around them, specifically um, to bring forth and to warn of impending judgment on the kingdom of Israel for their idolatry, specifically um, the institutionalized worship of the false god Baal. And the nation has the worst and the most evil king and queen that they've ever had. It's Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And so Elijah's called to confront them. In order to confront them and to confront the, um, the idol god Baal, um, God declares that there would be a drought on the land. It would not rain for over three years. Elijah would declare this drought. God then sends Elijah away into hiding uh, to a place called the Brook Cherith, where he is provided for with, with water and with food. Um, literally, ravens are feeding him. He's provided there with protection from King Ahab. And as the brook Cherith runs dry, God then leads him uh, to Zarephath, a, a place on the opposite side of the country along the coast where he would live with a, this uh, pagan Gentile widow and her son. And there God would provide for Elijah, uh, miraculously filling this woman's uh, flour jars and oil jars so that as she continued to pour out um, to provide for Elijah, uh, God would continue to pour out blessings upon her. Um, while he's there, um, the widow's son dies. And we talked about that last week. Uh, the widow's son dies, and both Elijah and the widow are very angry at God over the situation of the boy dying. And they bring their anger to God. Elijah uh, prays and pleads with God to resurrect the boy from the dead, and that indeed does happen. And so that's where the story leaves off. And I want you to remember specifically as we continue it today, the whole thing of Elijah being sent by God to run and hide uh, at the brook Cherith and at the widow's house where God, again, provides for him and protects him. And so we pick up this story in 1 Kings 18, verse 1 through 16. We're just going to read through this. Um, give a couple of um, comments as we read through them. We'll get to what we can draw from this particular passage. 
Um, so 1 Kings 18, 1 through 16. Verse 1 says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go and show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So keep in mind, this has been approximately three years. He's staying with the widow. It had been approximately three years since Elijah confronted King Ahab, um, in which God declared this drought would come upon the land. And God tells Elijah, okay, it's time to confront Ahab again. And this time, tell him I'm going to turn the rain back on again. So essentially, it's been long enough. Um, We don't know why God has chosen this time, uh, except for it's possible maybe King Ahab has learned his lesson. Um, We're going to find out in the next couple of weeks he had not. But God had given him ample opportunity to repent and to uh, bring his sin before God and to turn away from wickedness and turn back towards God. So verse 2 says, So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now remember, when he had confronted Ahab before, God sent Elijah away to two different places to protect him. And so this is not something Elijah wants to do. Elijah does not want to go back to confront the man and his crazy wife who have been trying to kill him for three years. This is not something that anybody's going to be like, oh, I'm stoked to go and tell Ahab. This could literally be a death sentence, and um, it kind of was a death sentence. And this was not something anybody would have wanted to do, but Elijah does it. He went to show himself to Ahab. We get kind of this meanwhile um, sentence in verse 2. It says, now the famine was severe in Samaria. Samaria is the piece of land where the northern kingdom of Israel is and and still is today. Samaria is the northern region of Israel. And so he goes to confront Ahab, and the famine is severe. It hasn't rained in about three years, and famines always um, come from droughts. It hadn't rained, and so now there's no food. It says, Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. So here we're introduced to this new character, if you will, named Obadiah. There is a... uh, book in the Old Testament called Obadiah. This is a different Obadiah. Uh, Obadiah that writes a small, minor prophetic book in the Old Testament is is not the same person. We don't know if this Obadiah is a prophet. He likely is not. This Obadiah basically is the manager of King Ahab's house. Remember, King Ahab, though he is apostate and he's worshiping Baal, uh, he still is an Israelite. And so, Ahab will have Israelites serving him in his household, and here the one who is really in charge of the affairs of his house is this man, Obadiah. And it says here in verse 3, this little parenthesis, the writer of 1 Kings says, Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. He's a good guy. He's on, he's on the good side. He serves God. He's not serving Baal. He is not actively participating in this institutionalized Baal worship. He's a good guy. It says, when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Now, as you read this, and every time I've read that, I'm like, oh, have I missed something? I don't remember reading about this. And that's because the author of 1 Kings here, he's writing to an audience that would have known this exact scenario he is talking about, this point in history where Ahab's wife, Queen Jezebel, it says she cut off the prophets. Essentially, she is 
putting to death the prophets of Israel so that they can no longer bring judgment upon them for worshiping Baal. And they think that by slaughtering the prophets of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of all creation, that then Yahweh will not be able to see them or judge them. That's wrong. And so tries to kill them. And it says that Obadiah, he, he's such a good guy that he knows this is wrong. He fears God. And so he risks his own life to put these prophets into hiding. The Bible sometimes, the language, this is written in Hebrew as we translate this to English. It just is an odd, an odd sentence. It says, hid them by 50s in a cave. It's like, but there was just 100. Why didn't you just say you hid them in two groups? Like, that's weird. But anyways, he hid two groups of 50, 50 plus 50 equals 100 in two caves. And Obadiah brings these prophets bread and water, which reminds us automatically of the previous chapter where ravens are the ones who bring Elijah bread and water. But here it's the man, Obadiah. And so when did this happen? When Jezebel was slaughtering prophets and when Obadiah hid them, the only thing we can assume is that it happened during this approximate three-year span while Elijah was hiding in the wilderness and we're going to learn here in a minute, he probably had no idea this had happened. I'm, I'm certain of that, actually. We'll look why in a second. So verse 5, it says, Ahab, King Ahab said to his servant Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys, and perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it, Ahab to one side and Obadiah to another. So Ahab went one direction, Obadiah went another direction. They're looking for water coming forth from any of these brooks, any of these springs, any of these streams. Have they all run dry? If not, is there grass somewhere that we can allow our livestock um, to feed on? So as Obadiah was on the way, Obadiah is on the way to look for green pasture. It says, behold, Elijah met him. This is just a by chance encounter. We'll see that God ordains this encounter, but they had not planned on meeting one another, but they run into one another. How many of you run into someone that you know, like in a really weird place before? Like they're just out looking for, for green pasture and they run into each other. Um, several times we've been to Disneyland, we've run into people we know, that's, that's interesting. I've been down hiking in a cave before, um, ran into people that I knew. Um, and so, you know, where, where have you run into people that surprised you? And so it says, he runs into Elijah. And Obadiah recognizes Elijah and fell on his face and said, is it you, my Lord, Elijah? Now, remember, Lord doesn't mean God. It just means basically master or someone uh, higher in rank than you. So is it you, Elijah? Now, some things that we can also ascertain from this text is it says Obadiah fell on his face. He said, is it you? Why would you fall on your face in front of someone that you recognized when you hadn't seen them for three years? I think he thinks Elijah was dead. And I, I told you a couple of weeks ago, I, for years I've wanted to do this series and call it Original Jedi, because this is reminiscent of Obi-Wan Kenobi on Tatooine. He comes out of the caves. He's just defeated the Tusken Raiders, and people are like, whoa, you know, he's alive, Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's been, he's been hiding, not dead. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> but I want you to enter into the story. 
So Elijah answers Obadiah, it is I. It's, it's, it's me. You're right. Go tell your Lord. Again, not saying Ahab is God, just master. Go tell your master. Go tell the king. Go tell your boss. Behold, Elijah is here. Yes, Obadiah, it's me. I've been alive all this time. And now that I found you, Obadiah, I know that you're serving King Ahab. I want you to go tell him I'm here to show myself to him. And so Obadiah says this, sure thing, Lord. It's not what he says. He actually says, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of King Ahab to kill me? Elijah, you're crazy. That's a death sentence if I go and tell Ahab that not only are you alive, but, but I actually came into contact with you and I didn't kill you. Now, this, again, is very reminiscent of the widow. Because when the boy dies, the widow says, how have I sinned that you would come here and God would kill my son? And the exact same thing here from Obadiah. How have I sinned that now God's going to kill me at the hands of my master for doing this thing for you, Elijah? Now, it's not true. This is not reality. But this is a valid fear that he has. So verse 10, it says, as the Lord your God lives... There is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. So Obadiah is like, I've watched for three years. Ahab and Jezebel are obsessed with you. They're sending people all throughout the nation and the kingdoms of this region to look for you. And when a city was entered and people in the city would say, he's not here, he would say, okay, swear on God's name. Swear on your mother's grave because if you're lying, I'll kill you. So this makes me wonder, did, did Ahab ever send someone to the widow's home to ask if he was there? Did the widow ever lie for for Elijah, it makes you wonder where Ahab had been searching. So verse 11, Elijah says, um, actually not Elijah, Obadiah. Obadiah says, now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. As soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. This is an odd statement. What he's saying is this. Elijah, everybody knows that you were the conduit to bring about this drought. Everybody knows God used you to bring about this famine. Everyone knows that you confronted Ahab. But Elijah, when you confronted Ahab, you disappeared. And you left all the other prophets in the land to be exposed to Jezebel and Ahab's wrath. And that just is not fair. Prophets died because of you, because you just... Show up, give your prophecy, and you run away and hide. And so if I go and tell him, hey, Elijah's here, I'm going to come back to take Ahab to see you, and you're going to be out. This isn't right, Elijah. Like, people are kind of upset that you're, you're gone. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. What is he doing? He's expressing some of the things we talked about last week. This isn't fair. Why would God bring about my death? Doesn't God know I've served him since I was a child? Elijah, don't you know that I'm faithful? I know and you know that I'm working for King Ahab, but I've stayed faithful. I fear the Lord. 
I'm on your side, Elijah. And he says, has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? Now, he's not boasting here. This is a very humble thing. He's like, Elijah, a lot's gone on since you've been missing. A, a lot's happened. All these prophets were slaughtered, and, and God used me to save a hundred. I've been taking care of two caves of 50 men for three years, feeding them bread and feeding them water. Don't you know about this, Elijah? And I actually don't think Elijah did, because Elijah has been in hiding for three years. Now, granted, God did put him in hiding, but Elijah, I do not think, knew. And so here Obadiah is saying, I want you to know what I did. I want you to know you can trust me. I'm on your side. Please don't have me killed. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. He'll kill me. And Elijah says in verse 15, as the Lord of hosts lives. And this translation is, is literally Yahweh, God of the angel armies. As he lives. The God before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to Ahab today. So it's interesting. Ahab makes cities take oaths that they're telling the truth. And here, Elijah himself, who they were promising, was not there. He says, I will make an oath on the Lord's name that I will be truthful. And when you go and get Ahab and bring him back, I'm not going to run away. I'm going to stay put right where I am. Elijah is willing to take this oath. And what he wants to do is he wants to decrease Obadiah's paranoia. And he's telling him, don't be afraid. I'm willing to meet Ahab today. I'm not going to run away. Verse 16 is the last verse we'll read. It says, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And next week, we'll look at what that meeting looked like. And we'll look at the fact that Elijah was true to his word. So this is a weird story. Not, not preachable. There's not much we can learn from this story, it would seem. But, but there's actually a lot going on here. And I hope I helped you understand some of the nuances. But again, just six real brief things that are is perfect for graduates and every other human that I want to teach to you today from lessons we can learn from Obadiah and Elijah. Number one is this. You are not alone. You're not alone. Elijah, we will learn over the next couple of weeks, thought he was alone, but he wasn't. There was others on his side. Not only Obadiah, but all the prophets who had been slaughtered. All the prophets who were hiding in cages. Elijah probably thought he was the only worshiper of Yahweh left in the land, and that everybody else had turned to Baal. And here God sends Obadiah to his path to remind him, Elijah, you're not alone. And even for Obadiah, he would have been elated when he saw Elijah was not dead. Even though he's clearly upset with him, he still is reminded, Obadiah, you're not alone. This, this miracle-working God who had been performing miracles through Elijah, he's still working through Elijah and can still work through you, Obadiah. So you're not alone in your city. As a follower of Jesus, you're not alone in your job. 
You're not alone at your school. You're not alone on your team. You're not alone in your neighborhood. There are other faithful followers of Jesus in your community. And oftentimes in the world we live in, it can feel as though people who trust and follow Jesus are a minority in the land. And I would say, yes, that's true. We are. However, you're not alone. So much so that this is why we do church, to show that we are not alone, that we come together as followers of Jesus, people that belong to him. And you can look around a room as you raise your hands in worship and say, I'm not alone. There's other people like me who trust and serve God like I do. So you're not alone. If you ever feel like you're alone, you're not. Number two, you're not the only one facing trials. Elijah had been hiding for three years. He's now reminded, hey, Elijah, that wasn't just you. The prophets had been hiding for three years in caves, and now they're reminded, hey, Elijah was in the same predicament. Obadiah thought that he was the only one who was facing the trial and the stress and anxiety of being killed by Ahab himself for hiding the prophets, and now he recognizes, I'm not the only one who's facing trials. 1 Corinthians 10 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Why do I point out that verse? It's because sometimes I think I'm the only one who struggles. Sometimes I think I'm the only one who's depressed. Sometimes I think I'm the only one who experiences pain. Sometimes I think I'm the only one who's experienced loss. Sometimes I feel I'm the only one who has anxiety and stress and who thinks about suicide and who does this and this and this and struggles with this or this or this. And I think that I am so alone and I find myself so ashamed. But the Lord wants you to know you're not alone in your struggle. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians, whatever it is you're struggling with, you're not alone. It's common. And have you ever struggled over something or been tempted with something or had a thought go through your head and you thought to yourself, I am the worst person on earth because I'm the only person who's ever thought this and no one can ever know. How about you? I know you're holy, but I'm the one who struggles here. It's like, oh, I feel so alone when I struggle. But God wants us to know you're not alone in struggles. Other people struggle with addiction. Other people struggle with temptations that they don't want to give into. Other people are hurting. Other people are mourning. Other people are grieving. You're not alone. And we don't say that flippantly to say, get over it, because other people deal with it too. Instead, we say it to bring you some confidence and assurance, because it reminds you there's other people who can empathize with me and relate to me. And thank God, I'm not a weirdo. There's other weirdos too. Everybody struggles. So number one, you're not alone. Number two, you're not the only one who struggles. And number three, you're not the only one doing good things. Or more specifically, you're not the only one doing great things for God. Elijah, the prophet, he confronted Ahab and he confronted the false god Baal, but Obadiah was saving 100 prophets in the aftermath. You're not the only person who does good work at work. 
You're not the only person who's trying their hardest at school. You're not the only person in your family that really wants to make a difference and make changes in your family for the good. Galatians 6.3 says, If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. You need to recognize the good things that other people do and be grateful for them, not jealous of them or compare yourself to them. Have you ever had that fleeting thought before, like, I wish everybody else was as good as me? I wish everybody else did good things like I did. I wish, I wish someone else stayed 30 minutes late from work like I do. I wish somebody else got straight A's like me. Well, hey, slow down. You're not the only person doing great things. Just like you're not the only person who struggles. We're all fighting for the same things. And so recognize other people's good work and be grateful for it. And I would encourage you to humble yourself. James 4.10, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You see, Elijah, it doesn't say it explicitly, but you're going to learn over the next couple chapters, he has this struggle with arrogance. He does think that oftentimes he's the only one doing good. He thinks he's the only one who struggles. He thinks that he's alone. But church, you're not alone. You're not the only one who struggles. And you're not the only one doing good. Number four, your choices matter and impact other people. Your choices matter and impact other people. See, Elijah asked Obadiah to do this thing. Hey, go tell Ahab, I'm here. What Elijah failed to realize at the moment is that affected Obadiah. That affected Obadiah's family. That affected Obadiah's prophets that he was hiding. In fact, it affected the entire nation because things could have went wrong. And so Elijah just shows up and is like, go tell Ahab I'm here. But Elijah needed to recognize and realize that by doing that, that could put Obadiah's life at risk. Elijah did a good thing, but he did not take into consideration the effect it would have on Obadiah. And he should have acknowledged that. But thank God Obadiah says, whoa, I might die. And so you have to take other people into consideration when you make a decision or a choice. Your decisions impact other people. For example, your sins impact people around you. And a lot of you say, well, Pastor, my sin doesn't hurt anybody. It's just my body that I'm doing things with. It doesn't affect other people. I want to tell you it does. Adam's sin in Genesis chapter 3 affected all of us. Because of, in Malachi 3, the Israel's failure to bring God the full tithe, it says the entire nation was cursed. Um, Exodus 34, God says the inequities of fathers are visited on the third and fourth generations. You say, Pastor, does God curse my children and my grandchildren for my sins and punish them? No. But they have to deal with the effects of your sin. And we are learning that genetically you're actually passing those things down to them. The Bible speaks truth thousands of years before science catches up to this idea that we're realizing that generational trauma is a very real thing. Your sin affects other people. As a result of Achan's sin, read Joshua 7. The entire nation of Israel suffered because of one man's sin of not giving what he was supposed to give to God. 
So your sins impact your children. And you might say, Pastor, my kids don't know what I'm doing. They don't know in here, but somehow they know it in here. Your sins do impact your kids and your grandkids. Say, Pastor, should I live my life in perpetual shame and guilt over that? No, you need to repent of your sin. You need to bring your sin into the light. You need to follow Christ. You need to submit yourself to the Holy Spirit so that you can walk after his ways. And, oh, yes, you will fall and fail again. And when you do, you allow your kids and your grandkids and your friends and your spouse and your neighbors to see you pick yourself back up under the power of the Spirit and repent all over again and say, I am following Jesus again. Because you will mess up, but the difference between your sin affecting those around you exponentially and actually not affecting those around you as much, the difference is repentance. When others see you and hear you repent, it can bring a change to your life. And I don't want to kick this too hard, but I am tired of seeing children and grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren suffer from the mistakes of their fathers and mothers and grandfathers and great-grandmothers and ancestors that seem like it has nothing to do with them, but yet in a strange way we inherit these things and we've got to put a death to these things and repent of them so that your kids and your grandkids can be free of these things because your sin will impact them. And so be please, please, please remember your choices and decisions impact others, especially, 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 especially your children. But with that being said, good decisions you make now could impact your family and your community for generations. In fact, in Exodus 34, when God is declaring that the inequities of a father get passed down to the third and fourth generation, it also declares that God blesses to thousands of generations. And so when you make a good decision, keeping in mind that the decisions we make impact others, the good decisions you make, if you thought bad decisions can make an impact, I want you to know that good decisions can make an even bigger impact in a bigger wake behind you. There are generational blessings, I believe, as well as generational curses. And many of you are walking in generational blessings of grandfathers and great-grandmothers who prayed that you would come to know Jesus, and their prayers are answered just by your presence here today. So the decisions you make as you graduate kindergarten, fifth grade, eighth grade, high school, associates, bachelors, masters, PhD, the decisions you make with those things, man, they can make impact for generations to come in a good way. Choose wisely. Take others into consideration when making decisions, their concerns, their limitations, their fears, their struggles. Romans 14, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. You might say, Pastor, I have freedom to do this or this or this. And I would say, amen, and yes, you do have freedom to make decisions in regard to things like, we'll use an example, alcohol. Yeah, you've got freedom to do that. But you've got to take into consideration those you interact with. Maybe they don't have that freedom. And so maybe you choose when you're with someone not to have a drink, or you choose when you're with someone not to talk about a particular topic because it is too traumatic for them. And so the decisions we make, we have to take others things into consideration because this is not about us. It's about those we do life with. And so in saying that, don't throw other people under the bus. 
Don't throw others under the bus. You ever been thrown under the bus before? Feels good, huh? You ever had to throw yourself under the bus to protect someone else? That feels way better. (laughs) But, man, don't throw people under the bus. You see, it could have gone both ways. Elijah could have bailed. No pun intended. Uh, uh, Elijah could have not shown up, and he would have literally thrown Obadiah under the bus. Like, go tell Ahab I'm here. Peace out, and Obadiah dies. Obadiah could have thrown Elijah under the bus. Hey, King Ahab, Elijah's here. Let's sneak up on him and kill him. But neither of these men threw one another under the bus. Peter denied Christ and threw him under the bus. Adam and Eve threw each other under buses tens of thousands of years before there were buses. (laughs) Don't throw people under the bus. Getting ahead is never worth the expense of others. So those who've graduated and everyone else, in school, at work, in your family, in your circle of friends, it's never worth it to throw someone under the bus. Because when you throw somebody under that bus, typically you end up getting hit by that same bus not too long after. Last two, your word matters. If you say you're going to be somewhere, be there. Show up on time. Show up. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Act with integrity. James says, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Now, it's ironic because Elijah did. He said, I swear on the name of God, the God of the angel armies, that I will keep my word. Elijah should not have done that and didn't need to do that. But he did keep his word. So James says, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Jesus said it himself in Matthew 5. So don't throw people under the bus and then keep your word. Your integrity matters. Honor other people with your word. This is a great way to respond to the fact that you're not alone. This is a great way to respond to the fact that you're not the only one facing trials. This is a great way to respond to the fact that you're not the only one doing good, and it's a great way to respond to the fact that your choices impact others by being a person of your word. Yeah, I'll show up at your dorm and study with you tonight. Yes, I will show up to help you move. Yes, I will show up and help you figure out that project at work, and then just do it. Show up. Be there. Here's the last one, number six. Be obedient and do it boldly. Be obedient to whatever God calls you to do and then do it boldly. We go back to the beginning of this story. 1 Kings 18. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah, what's the next word? He went. Elijah went. Just be obedient. All this other stuff is just practical advice. You're not alone. You're not the only one who struggles. You're not the only one doing good. Keep your word. Make sure that you don't throw people under the bus. Your decisions impact others. All that really is just practical, but practicality that doesn't actually happen unless you're obedient to God. If you're obedient to the Lord and his call on your life, these other things will follow. So be obedient and do it boldly. 
If God tells you to confront a wicked king, do it. You do it. Even if it's the second time doing it. Even if it's the third time doing it. Because Elijah's going to have a third time. You keep doing what God called you to do until he says stop. Until he said, says otherwise. So what is God calling you to do as you enter into this next season of your life? What's God calling you to leave behind? What's God calling you to quit? What's God calling you to take up? What's God calling you to follow him into? What's God calling you to give? Be obedient to the call of the Lord. And do it boldly. And as you do and walk in his will, he'll protect you and he'll provide for you until the work is done. And as you follow him in all things, this other stuff follows as well. Would you bow your heads as we pray? We're going to sing out this service. Um, just declare God's goodness through song. As, as you leave later today, um, take time to interact with people. We were going to have fun at the beach. We were going to normally would have church tonight. So take some time to interact with some people. If you saw some people be honored for graduating today, um, congratulate them. You can ask them maybe what some of their plans are um, so that you can encourage them in some of these things we've learned today. If you'd like some notes on this message, um, our app, it's FC Online, under the, the message notes um, all six of those things are there and all the verses that we read today. And I think even the verses that we alluded to um, are there as well. You can keep those. Um, study this week. And next week we get to have the big flashy, um, dramatic message on the showdown with the prophets of, of Baal. So perfect for Father's Day, blood and guts and fire. Yes and amen. So let's pray, guys. Uh, God, thank you for your word. Um, God, your word says of itself um, that it's useful for teaching and rebuking and equipping and preparing us for good work. Um, so God, even the most obscure verses about uh, uh, what appears to be a random encounter between this man Obadiah and, and Elijah, we can learn much from it, God. So God, as we look through your word daily, would you, would you illuminate things for us that you want us to know? And, and God, it would be, it'd be easy today to, to teach a self-help lesson and tell people to, to leave this place and go try hard, work hard, and, and do good. But God, that, that really is all pointless um, unless it's for you. And so God, if we remember any of those things we looked at today, let us remember number six. Let us remember to be obedient to you and to obey boldly. Yet, Lord, if there's anyone here that thinks they're alone, alone in their addiction, alone in their temptation, alone in circling, spinning thoughts that they can't control, if anyone thinks they're alone in their pornography, if anyone thinks they're alone in their suicidal fantasies. If anyone thinks they're alone in, in, in losing a mother or a father, remind them, God, that there's others, there's others around.
there's those who are willing to help them, those who are willing to encourage them and to hold them up when they can't hold themselves. If anybody here feels like they're the only faithful person at at work or in their class, God, remind, remind them that they're not and show them fellow believers that they can encourage one another with. Um, in that, God, in any struggle we feel alone in, remind us we're not. God, if we would ever puff ourselves up and think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, thinking that we're the only one doing or accomplishing good, um, God, would you show off the good of others in front of us so we can be grateful for it? And Lord, we condemn and speak against any jealousy we may have of others that do good we speak against comparison with others who are doing good. God, we can only do what you've called us to do, what you've equipped us to do with the skills you've given us. So help us not to covet the good that others are doing, but instead help us to do the good you're calling us to do. God, as we make choices and decisions over this summer and beyond, remind us that every yes we give and every no we give impacts not just our family in bizarre ways. It impacts history. So God, if there is a sin that we are holding on to, which is bringing about the detriment of our children, our grandchildren, our co-workers, our spouse, call that into the light. Call us to repentance. Call us with humility to walk toward you in obedience. God, if there is um, good you're calling us to, let us follow so that we can not leave generational curses, but we can leave generational blessings and a legacy. God, help us to be true to our word. Say say yes when we mean it. Say no when we mean it. Help, help our word means something. Let us be people of integrity. And again, let us follow after you. God bless us this week. Let us not think we've done our religious duty when we leave this place, but instead let us step out into a week-long relationship with you that brings us back again. In Jesus' name.